Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yannis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to dig into their personal connection to a current or classic release. Normally, this week, we're going to be continuing our series uh, following the Harry Potter films, and we're getting closer to the end. This week, we are talking about Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1, and I'm honored to welcome to the show, Lindsay Cole. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. So tell people a little bit about who you are, what you're up to, and then uh, then we'll start moving into the wizarding world. Who I am. Well, I am an actor and an acting coach. Um, And there's not a whole lot of that going on right now with COVID. (laughs) Um, But that's that's normally what I do, uh, especially, you know, stage work and musical theater. Um, You know, you could feel free to check out my website, www.lindsaycoleactor.com. Um, so yeah, that's what I do. And it's a big reason why I love films. I, um, you know, I love storytelling and I love acting and there's a lot going on with Harry Potter. So yeah, there is. <laughs> and you're a longtime childhood friend of Kai who's been on the show. That many times. is right. Kai is like my sister. We, um, we've known each other since we were toddlers and um, our moms are good friends, and we've even we've been roommates before. Um, she's I just love her so much. She's family to me. Um, and Rob, you're pretty cool too. You know. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I will take it. Um, <laughs> well, I'm glad that we were finally get, able to get you on here. I know uh, we've been wanting to to get you on the show for a while. So when I threw out that I uh, on I think Facebook that I was doing Harry Potter this year, I think you were pretty quick to grab. Deadly Hallows Part One. We'll get to why in a second, but first of all, when did you come across the Harry Potter? I'm assuming the book series first, and what's your experience with those as well as the films? Okay, well, I actually uh, watched the movie, the the very ah, okay. first movie first. Yeah, I was in college, um, so it was a while ago, <laughs> and um, I think at that point only the first two movies had been made. And um, my younger stepsister, she was a big fan of the first movie and wanted me to watch it with her. And at the time I was kind of like, I'm going to be watching this children's movie. Okay. And then I thought it was really good. So then I decided I wanted to read the book. So then I actually started with Chamber of Secrets since I had already seen the first movie. And then um, I think at that point... I think at that point, the third and the fourth had also been written. So I, I went through Chamber of Secrets, Prisoner of Azkaban, and Goblet of Fire, like rapid pace. I just could not put them down. And then after I read those, I went back and read the first book. Um, and then I watched the second movie, really liked it. And from then on, you know, I was like pre-ordering my book whenever the new book would come out. I usually, I think there's, I think there's one book where I went at midnight and bought it. But usually I would get up early the morning it came out, buy it, you know, plow through it in like a day or two. Um, and same with the movies, I'd always go to the midnight showing. Um, so, you know, I've, I've been a fan of this franchise now for, for a long time. Yeah. It feels like so long ago 
when when we describe because I you know this was this movie came out the one we're going to talk about this episode came out a decade ago, and it feels like a million years ago when we talk about people waited in line at bookstores to pick up physical <laughs> copies uh, of of a book. First of all, people reading books. <laughs> Let's talk about that one, and and then you know physical copies. Now everything is digital and. It makes I feel like it makes us sound like dinosaurs when we talk. Oh, I remember I when you waited at a at a Barnes and Noble or a Borders, and they're like, "What's Borders, Grandpa?" I'm it's like, oh. true. Oh my gosh, I know. Yeah, that was before I had a Kindle. It's so true. Um, but it was so. I mean, and again, I'm going to sound really old, but it's there's there's such a festiveness about it. You know what I mean? Like you go to the bookstore, and like. I'd see people dressed up in Harry Potter like merchandise yeah. and be like, oh, we're all getting our books. <laughs> so I, you know, I'm aging myself here, but um, but I, I I think about it very fondly. I think we need more of that kind of fest book-related festivity. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I because I remember when the movie came out, obviously, you know, I, I saw the movies and then went back and read the books. Actually, Deadly Hallows is the only book I haven't read. Uh, at all. I read the first three hardcover and then I did the audiobooks for four, five, and six. And then I never got to seven. I think because I was intimidated. It was like, it's like 24 or 27 discs. And um, by the time oh it came God. out, I was in a relationship and then running, you know, had a house and then a kid. And so right. I never really gotten, they don't really get that much time to actually focus and listen to a story. So that's something that I, I really need to rectify just because it's the last one it's the only one left and i've tried this even started it a couple of times um but yeah so i remember when the movie came out the first movie uh i was working at an amc uh and there were adults coming to the concession stand you know with the lightning bolt on their forehead and costumes <laughs> and all of that and so that's kind of the way i discovered it too i was like okay what is this everybody's excited about this movie and i and then I was really impressed with that. And then my brother was really into it and it became a whole, it became a whole thing from there. But, um, but yeah, I feel like there was more, and this is probably because it was pre-social media, there was more purity to the fandom back then. Now, every time something comes out, just as many people hate it as love it, it seems. True, true. I, to I totally agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so I feel like Harry Potter might have been one of the last ones that kind of slipped in there and and ended the ended a franchise before everyone was on, you know, everyone was really on Twitter. Uh, yeah, I think I feel like Twitter launched like 2007, probably around this time, a year or so, give or take a year, was when Twitter was really blowing up. I think I joined in like 2009, possibly, uh, and and Harry Potter kind of slipped through before everyone was hashtagging their thoughts about everything they had seen. And, and yeah, it's, it's really, it's really crazy how the culture has moved so fast in the last decade. Yeah. So, I mean, social media has just sped everything up too, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It was a simpler so, time. <laughs> God, I know. Well, we're, I mean, this is obviously behind the scenes, but we're recording this the day before the election. So we're all, tensions are high. Uh, on the side of the call, on both mm -hmm. sides of the call, but um, but yes. So the the fact that the this series is about sort of an uprising of like a, an evil regime. I've been calling them magic Nazis on the podcast. <laughs> is it, it, you know the parallels are are very potent, especially you know starting with Order of the Phoenix, where there's yes. all this misinformation, 
uh, and it's sort of, uh, you know, Voldemort is back and the ministry is trying to, you know, in denial and trying to keep it under wraps. And there's like this underground movement where the kids are going to save everyone, basically. Um, so, so there's a lot of that going on. Uh, that in mind, is there a specific reason why you wanted to talk about Deathly Hallows Part 1? And where, how do you sort of rank the series? How do I rank the series? Okay, well, I can definitely say Deathly Hallows is my favorite of, of the books. Um, and both films are my favorite of the films. I just, I'm, I'm a sucker for, um, <laughs> for darkness, for tragedy and drama. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's one of the things I like about the books, about how they get progressively darker as you go. And, and the mm-hmm. films literally do. Um, but um, and then I, I like part one, I think, even a little more than part two, because I mean, part two is great because it has so much action. But I like that part one is where everything's kind of simmering beneath the surface. You know what I mean? It kind of almost yeah. it, so much of the conflict comes from um, from from Ron and Hermione and Harry and all of this uncertainty they're facing in terms of like, they don't even know how to begin to find these Horcruxes. They don't know how to destroy them and, and how, you know, they all, especially Ron and Harry kind of like turn on each other, um, especially with the Locket's influence and all of that. Um, so I, you know, I really like that. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I'm an actor. I really like, I really like psychology and I really like the way people can get under other people's skin and, um, and create tension and drama. I, I find that fascinating. So um, that's probably why that's my favorite. And then in terms of ranking, I, you know, it's funny when I first, when I first read them, Prisoner of Azkaban was my favorite. Um, but now being older and having seen the movie so many times, having reread the series several times, uh, I would, I would just go backwards, literally like seven is my favorite back to one being my least favorite. The one is a very sweet, sweet story. Mm. That is the most, you know, that's the most like children's literature to me. Um, And the message is really heartwarming and beautiful, but, um, but give me the darkness and the drama. Um, So actually, you know what? So it'd be six, seven, five, four, three, two, one. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very stark contrast. The first one to the, to the last one, like, right? or, or let's, let's say this is because this is the first part of the last one. Let's say from Sorcerer's Stone to here. Cause you know, Kai and I, our, our daughter is almost four. I feel like the first movie is the only one I would even consider showing her right. for a while. Um, just because yeah. it's just, like you said, the, the, there's so much awe and wonder to the first one. It has, uh, I, I sort of likened it to sort of a Wizard of Oz quality uh, hmm. when I first saw it because there's the moment where um, where Hagrid taps on the, the bricks and it opens up revealing Diagon Alley and it's very much stepping into another world sort of deal. Hmm. Uh, and this one is just like that whole world is it's just, it's like, if if the the first one is Wizard of Oz, this is Return to Oz. <laughs> where there's electrotherapy yes. and like, like terrifying uh, severed heads screaming at you. And like, it's just, you know, it doesn't even feel like the same franchise in a way. That's a and great I, parallel. <laughs> and, I, and I think um, I, I've sort of mentioned this in previous episodes, but it feels to me that the metaphor there is, you know, the whole thing is a coming of age story. So it starts mm-hmm. out when you're and you're young and everything is discovery and blah, blah, blah. And as it goes on, things get more complicated. You realize the authority figures in your life aren't exactly who you thought they were. 
right. you sort of having to have to step on step into your own, and that's sort of the the stripping away of Harry's, um, you know, mentors. First, mm-hmm. uh, first uh, Sirius, then Dumbledore, then basically everyone else. And yeah. it's it, by the end, he's he's a man, and he makes the decision to face Voldemort himself uh, in the Forbidden Forest. So. Yeah, so I I think it's really fascinating the way that it kind of mirrors the adolescence, uh, the pe- the period of adolescence from from childhood to adulthood. Uh, but I feel like we're kind of already leaning into the movie. So so let's listen to a little bit of the trailer for Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part One right now. We have infiltrated the Ministry. You have nothing to fear if you have nothing to hide. The longer we stay here, the stronger he gets. I must be the one to kill Harry Potter. We need to get off the streets, get somewhere safe. Let's say we get undercover before someone murders them. That way they won't know which Harry Potter is the real one. They are coming. They are coming. Harry! No! Go! Hang on, Harry! Nobody else is going to die. Not for me. Do something. You think I don't know how this feels? You don't know how it feels. Your parents are dead. You have no family. He's after you, Mr. Potter. Tell me where he is. You really don't stand a chance. I got him! Help me! That was a little bit of the trailer for Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1 from 2010, directed by David Yates. Do you think that this franchise benefits from the fact that they've had they had the same director from Order of the Phoenix, Half-Blood Prince, these two? And then I believe he's still doing all the Fantastic Beasts, actually. Um, yes, I, I really like his direction um, because you know what? I actually, because who did the third one? Was that Alfonso Cuaron? That was, yeah. I was not a fan of his direction. Um, really? And it actually, That's yeah. Hot take. Hot take, I know, Lindsay. I know. I, I was surprised. I thought I would really like it. And when I saw it, I, I did not like it. <laughs> and, um, and, and it was a shame for me because, like I said, for a while, that book was my favorite of the books. Right. Um, and then, you know, Chris Columbus, he's just, he, I think he's great for those first two movies because he's really great at bringing in that kind of like, childhood wonder that you were just talking about. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so I, I thought, you know, after Quaron, I feel like they found a really solid director in terms of where the, um, films needed to go. So I was really glad that they stuck with him. I like Prisoner of Azkaban. I think Quaron's a great filmmaker. I can see how that would kind of throw you off because he does lean into the, the whimsy pretty hard. He does, uh, it feels very much like a Tim Burton-y aesthetic, which, which maybe isn't necessarily the way that, I, you know, you, you see the Harry Potter universe. Well, I felt like it distracted from the story. I felt like I was noticing his direction and it was actually that. taking me out of the story as opposed to it seamlessly like um, uh, lifting the story. You know what I mean? Right. Um, it was more Quaron doing his own thing instead of making a Harry Potter movie. Yeah, yeah. That was that was how I felt. Um Okay, fair enough. 
but he was great on on The Little Princess. So yeah, it's a good <laughs> movie. Little Princess. It is a good movie. <laughs> so I think the most obvious question with Deathly Hallows is: Do you think this should have been? cut into two movies. Is there any way they could have made this work otherwise? Because this was the first of many sort of YA adaptations that, you know, Twilight, Hunger Games, uh, Divergent, I think, did that and then never even Ugh. bothered with the last one. Uh, they were much so every, bad. <laughs> I, I didn't bother with those. But pretty much all of them tried to do the same thing. I think to much, uh, much poorer results, I think, this, in my opinion, it's kind of more warranted here. But where do you, where do you stand on that? I, I'm glad they did it. I I feel like there would have been so much valuable stuff that would have been cut out. And um, I think they did a really effective job with making it like a cliffhanger at the end of um, part one. You know, I saw it in theaters. And at the end, I was like, yeah, can't wait for the next one. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, I, I, I think it serves the story really well. I, I like that choice. What about you? What I think you it works. And, and I think it works because so many of the other novels uh, have that, you know, that's the subplot that's not really relevant. The one I tend to go back to is, mm. there's, I forget in which one it is. I think it might be Goblet of Fire or where Hermione's trying to free the, the house. Yes. Elves. Like it, yeah. it has nothing to do with the title of mystery of the movie. It's just kind of a, a world building. By the way, this is also happening in the background kind of thing. Right. And all of them have that to some extent. I think a lot of people criticize Half-Blood Prince for cutting out. And because Kai actually was on that episode and she talked about how she thinks it's a much better book than a movie because they streamlined pretty heavily all the young Tom Riddle stuff. Uh, yes. And, and that- cut a lot of it out in favor of, you know, love triangles and potions and stuff like that. Right. No, I was disappointed about that with the sixth film as well, because I thought that was that was some of my favorite stuff in that book was the Tom Riddle and his his mother. Um, I, I thought all of that was really interesting and and sad. But, you know, like I said, I really like psychology. So I loved finding out all of the details about why Voldemort was who he was. Yeah, it's a little bit like uh, what was that Hannibal Rising where it's like, whoa, this is how yes. he got to be this way. Scary. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I think in Deathly Hallows, you don't really have any, there's no B story to be cut. It's all 100% focused on the Horcruxes and, and sort of wrapping things up and tying together, you know, the previous six chapters. So I think, yeah, and I, I think it's, it works here because of that. And the, the two movies are still very different. I think you can, you can feel... David Yates' uh, contrasting style just between from these movies to the previous ones, but also between these two different movies because it, it, the way I sort of see it is kind of like the the Kill Bill movies, if you've seen those. That, uh, it's been the a first while. One, the first one is like all action. It's a revenge. It's like, you know, super violent. And it's just her, you know, Uma Thurman kicking ass basically for two hours. And then the next <laughs> one, it's it slows down and like the big climax is her and, and Bill having a conversation and a very short sword fight. Uh, I feel like it's sort of flipped with the Harry Potter movies that this is the quiet, more reflective, more character based one. And then the next one's basically a two hour climax. I mean, that's how the book is laid out. You know, I think I think she wanted a lot of build because when you're investing yourself, I mean, that's the thing it could maybe work better with something like Kill Bill where it's just, you know, two volumes or whatever, where, where this has been building up for seven books, you know what I mean? So like, Mm -hmm. it seems like it should all culminate in something really huge at the end. 
So um, I think I think it makes sense that the second movie would would kind of have this really huge action heavy high stakes um, plot stuff going on, you know, while the first half of that is still getting you there. Right. Right. And they established the stakes right up front here. We have, uh, you know, the minister talking about how the ministry is strong and (laughs) not so much. And, uh, and I feel like for the first time we finally see inside the lion's den, like this is the first time we actually get to kind of spend time with Voldemort and the death eaters, uh, in their lair. What was that? You know, how, how do you think that contributes to making this feel like the sort of epic conclusion to the saga? Well, it's kind of funny. It's almost like a parallel of how, you know, nobody for, for so much of the franchise, no one's willing to say Voldemort's name or, you know, a few Mm -hmm. people are willing to say it. Um, and so it's almost like, um, we were meant to, um, keep him at arm's length. You know what I mean? Um, in general. And so it's like by the seventh book, it's like, we're going to, I feel like it's a little bit of foreshadowing shadowing in that. No, we're, we're going to get to know this man intimately. We're going to be right up there. And, um, it's like, there's no hiding anymore. There's no avoiding this man. There's no, like saying his name does not matter anymore. We're going right up into his space, you know, where, where he is, where these atrocities are being committed. I mean, that scene is so, it's so sad with the muggle studies teacher, you know, what they're doing to her. And, and she's just so pathetic pleading for Snape, uh, to help her. You know, um, it's just it's just a really effective way of bringing us into his orb and um, and, you know, reacquainting ourselves with the depth of his cruelty. It's also considering he is such a, a you know, the primary villain of this franchise and, and such a, a dramatic force. How little really until this movie you get of Voldemort at all. I mean, in one, he's on the back of a dude's head. And two, he's a memory <laughs> in a book. Three, he's not in at all. Four, he shows up at the end. Five, again, at the end. Six, I don't, it's like just flashbacks. And so you barely get a glimpse into what he's up to now until here. Uh, and then I feel like Half-Blood Prince is obviously the setup for the big conclusion with the Horcruxes being introduced and also yeah. letting us know what his upbringing was so that when we get to this mm-hmm. moment, uh, when we get to the, this two-part finale, we're, it feels like Voldemort and Harry are more on even footing because we ha- understand the depths of both of their stories a little more completely. True, yeah, yeah. No, I remember being surprised um, that Ray Fiennes was playing it when I saw Goblet of Fire because I was like, this is like, I mean, he's the villain, but gosh, it, you barely really see him in this movie. Mm-hmm. And Ray Fiennes is such a big deal, such a, you know, internationally renowned actor. Um, but I guess he, he <laughs> maybe JK like, told him don't worry i'm gonna give you some more meaty stuff by the end <laughs> i don't know yeah he, uh, he, yeah go ahead sorry i was just gonna say which by the way i've heard not nice things about ray fines as a human being really <laughs> yeah i um i worked with a woman who did hair for him and on a film he did and um she said he was like a huge diva that the crew was ordered to not speak with him to, with him or make eye contact with him <laughs> like he's one of those actors <laughs> So he might not have even known the cameras were rolling in this movie is what you're saying. Just Right, right? <laughs> I know. I, there's the a reason why he's like, so... Wow. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, she feels so authentic. When I heard that, because he's so talented. And yeah, I never yes. hear that about talented actors. I'm like, man, now I can't like you as much anymore. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that's that's sort of been what's going on with me last couple of months, especially last few months, especially with J.K. Rowling, with everything oh, going no. on about about her. That's why at least the last couple of episodes, I'm basically trying to not talk about the person that created these because it's like separating the art from the artist. Uh, and, you know, I've had I had uh, guests lined up for the last episode that ended up not wanting to do it because she's like, I can't really talk about this right now. She's like you know, she has a friend who's non-binary and, mm. and it's the whole thing just feels really close to home. So it, it's very awkward now that Harry Potter fans, so many of them are having to turn their back on JK Rowling, uh, in the midst of all this, but, um, I, yeah, well, so. it's just, well, even watching this movie and when they go into the ministry of magic and, and there's that moment where Hermione sees the statue in the middle of that lobby area, of the muggles being crushed underfoot of the um, wizards. And, and, you know, she says something like, oh, it's the muggles in their rightful place. You know, that's where they think we should, you know, muggles should be or something. And, and I was just thinking, like, I can't even wrap my head around the cognitive dissonance required for, like, for J.K. Rowling to put all of this, like, anti-prejudicial, like, thought into her work to have all of these messages. I mean, the, the whole first book is about how love triumphs over fear. You know what I mean? Cause that's Voldemort functions out of fear and hate and Harry functions out of love. And I'm like, can't you see how hypocritical you are? Like, can't you see that, that you have a major blinders are regarding the trans community that what you should be doing is responding with love. Like, I just, I can't wrap my brain around it. It's so crazy to me. It's know, so disappointing. It's so disappointing. I, I had a, I made a note for part two of this where there's the, there's the scene where uh, Dumbledore and Harry are in the, in Harry's mind or wherever. And he's like, he says something, he says, uh, don't pity the dead, pity the living. And above all those who live without love. And I wrote in my notes, huh, JK. <laughs> because it's like, <laughs> Jesus. Um, no, that's the thing that I, I said, to Mike, to my husband, Mike, um, I, I was like, it's so funny that her name is JK. Cause it's like, JK, I'm not a good person. <laughs> yeah. <pretty laughs> you know, much. like ugh, I can't, I can't, I know it's, it's very disappointing. And now, yeah, her work is very confusing to consume because of it. Right. But yeah, it's glad that we, it's good that we at least acknowledge her that way. People listening are like, well, what about the whole thing with JK Rowling? I'm like, we know we're aware Yeah, we're focusing yeah. on the work and not the, not the person behind it because you know, got to get through the end of this franchise, at least. First. Right. That's the thing that happened in the, the, the I mean, I, I know she's made comments and stuff over like, you know, periodically over, over time, but this whole like really crystallized while I was in the middle of this franchise. And so now I'm like, uh, shit, <laughs> need to get through this now and move on to the next. Um, because it's it, the whole thing gotten really uncomfortable. It's become very ill time, but uh, but yes, uh, Ray Fine is great as Voldemort, and uh, he has, seems like he's having the time of his life. And now that you said that, I, I understand why a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? Like, you know, maybe he's not a prejudicial jerk um, against entire communities. So, you know, if that's the case, he at least, you know, is doing better than J.K. Rowling, I guess. <laughs> that's true. Very true. Very true. Uh, I will uh, say Daniel Radcliffe is supposed to be very, very nice. 
he, I have that, heard that's, just wonderful stories about him. That's good. That's good. We'll take that yeah. at least. I, I, yeah. I remember <laughs> I saw a tweet months ago that stuck in my head. It's like, it's amazing that Daniel Radcliffe was able to write and star in the Harry Potter movie. <laughs> <laughs> We're just like, let's rewrite history. Um, focus yeah. on, on him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and considering the, you know, whatever billions of dollars he's was he's worth or was worth with these movies, it's like it, he seems pretty grounded, weirdly. Yeah. Like you would think oh, as yeah. someone the most famous he was I think at one point he was the richest British child other than the princes, basically. Wow. Uh and it you know, you would you would think that would really go to his head, but he didn't even seem to have that much of a sort of Justin Bieber like acting out phase. He did. He struggled with addiction issues. He did. He I actually, remember hearing about that, but it wasn't like yeah, a public thing really so much, it seems. No, it wasn't. I think, um, yeah, it was very hidden, but I know he said he was a drunk for a lot of those later movies. Um, but uh, I saw him, I saw him do How to Succeed in Business without really trying on Broadway. And he was really wonderful. And I, I have some friends who worked that show. And, and one of my friends, she was the bartender in the lobby and she said she used to hang out with him in the alley during intermission while he was smoking cigarettes. And he was so nice. And um, he, it, like, for some reason, is really interested in American history. And my friend is as well. So they would talk about American history. My friend loves um, Polk, is her favorite president for whatever really? reason. Okay. I don't really know enough that's about presidents to say if that's cool or not. Um, but uh, <laughs> But he bought her a book on Polk. Like he, and, and I just heard such nice, nice things about him. So, um, just so down to earth and nice. So, um, yay him. (laughs) I'm glad he overcame his addiction issues. I'm glad he still works. I think he's talented too. Like I said, he was really good in the show. I thought he was well cast. So, um, I love to see him in these movies and I'm so glad he wrote these books. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. you, (laughs) Um, no, no, I, yeah, I, I, I'm glad that that to hear that. That's that's always nice to to learn that uh, the, such famous people are not are not garbage people. Um, <laughs> right. I, I think to that. I feel like that's sort of weirdly a transition into the big questionable garbage person of this franchise, which is Snape. Who mm. up to this point? So you had read the books up to this point when this came out. I'm assuming. Right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, so I I knew all of it. Okay. Before when I you, saw okay, that. so and I guess then when you finished Half Blood Prince, and before you had read Deathly Hallows, where do you where were you uh, on Snape? Because I know that was the big marketing thing for Deathly Hallows. Like Snape, is he good? Is he evil? What's going on? Like where did you sort of land on that? Gosh, uh, to be honest, it's a little hard to remember. It was so long <laughs> ago. Do you think I, that uh, the movies do a, a credible job, kind of? Uh, raising that question so that there's an argument for both sides. How about that? I do. Yeah. Especially, I mean, in that scene that I just mentioned earlier with that Mm -hmm. muggle studies teacher, you know, he just sits there. Well, I mean, well, they torture her and kill her. Um, So I think that's a really solid mislead, you know, that Mm -hmm. they do um, to cast further doubt about, about his allegiance yeah, I think I just felt confused. I mean, I was so horrified when Dumbledore died in the sixth book. Um, and so, I, oh God, I was so sad and I was so shocked and surprised. And so for Snape, you know, to have been involved in that way, I was I was just horrified. 
Um, but I don't, yeah, I can't remember if I, what opinion I had either way. I think I just couldn't wait to find out. <laughs> this is definitely the story where everybody is sort of facing, uh, praying, paying the price for their decisions. So Snape, mm-hmm. as we find out in the next one, was, you know, sort of a, agreed to be a double agent protecting Harry until he could face Voldemort and all of that. And so, you know, that moment that you just mentioned in the beginning of the movie, it's like, it's him, how he has to now live with all the things that he has let, that he's had to let happen. And right. I think that's, that sort of feeds into what Harry says in the epilogue of the next one, where he's like, uh, you know, the, one of the, one of the, na- one of the uh, headmasters of Hogwarts that you're named after talking to his uh, son, Albus Severus Potter, uh, was a Slytherin and the bravest man I ever knew. And because he had to live with this for so many years, kind of playing both sides and keeping his true allegiance hidden and letting the world think he was this terrible person, uh, all in service of, you know, playing basically the end game, essentially, and, and kind of keeping that, that card up their, up, up, uh, up their sleeves until the very last, in the very last moment. Right. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting with Snape because he is he's such a controversial character. Um I've I've seen and read a lot of, you know, of especially women who think we shouldn't be praising Snape as some sort of hero, you know, when he like was like weirdly stalkery about Lily and um and then like continued to like bully her son. <laughs> Um, you know, like, because he was so petty about his dad or, you know, cause right. it's like, oh, well he did this stuff, but like, like really he was like nursing, nursing this stalker, like love for his mother and then treating Harry terribly. Um, and so, and I, I kind of see that point, um, but I don't know. I just have a lot of empathy for him. Um, and I think that I think that he, I, maybe I'm giving him too much credit, but I feel like he wanted to be kind to Harry and, um, but there was just too much about him that was similar to James and James yep. bullied him. And I think it was really triggering for Snape's own trauma to have to, to have to look after somebody who so resembled and took after Snape's former tormentor, you know, yeah. um, Snape obviously had such low self-esteem and, um, and I don't think uh, the death of Lily helped that. I mean, I think that's partly why he was able to do all of that sacrificial stuff um, was because I feel like he, on some level, felt that he deserved to be punished for for being responsible for her death. Oh, I've also heard people say that they thought it was creepy that he just wanted to like look at Harry's eyes while he was dying. Like, mm. but I don't, I don't know. I just, I maybe I'm still too much of a like a some kind of romantic or maybe it's my own internalized patriarchy or some shit. I don't know. But, <laughs> but, but, um, I think maybe some of the stuff that wasn't great was worth it if it meant he saved the world, mm-hmm. I guess. Oh, I yeah. Know. No, I, I don't know what I'm excusing, but, but yeah, no, I, I have empathy for him and I think he's multifaceted. I do too. I, um, and this, you know, he's not even in this one that much. It's really in the second one True. in the next part where he's, he, we kind of learned the depth of his story, but you know, I'll admit it. I watched Deathly Hallows part two last night. I cried at his death scene and yeah. in his montage when it happens, because you, you do see the fact that there's, there's sort of an argument, I think, at least in the movies for, uh, the fact that he and Lily had a friendship 
And then James kind of came along and stole and, and disrupted that and belittled him and sort of, in his eyes, took Lily away from him. There's yeah. also the um, the reveal in that epic montage of, uh, of Snape's memories where he sends the Patronus, which is the same one that matches Lily. So it kind of yes. implies that they really kind of were meant to be together in a way. Uh, that that there was some connection there that was disrupted by James Potter. And, and, and I think Harry's sort of realization, he gets a little bit of that in Order of the Phoenix with the occlumency uh, lessons with Snape, that his father wasn't, wasn't you know, the perfect person either, that these are all these adults aren't classified as good or bad. Even the Malfoys in this, and this is sort of a, a right. transition. The Malfoys are p- pathetic characters in these last two movies. They're trapped with the with the magic Nazis, which I'm going to stick to that. Um, <laughs> you know, they they put their they put their you know all their chips on Voldemort, and now they're sort of again paying the price for that decision. They're suffering, and they're they're you know outcast from their uh, their place within the the legitimate wizarding world and now they're just kind of uh trapped as as Voldemort's lackeys basically they have no choice in what they're doing they're not they're not really obviously behind the cause anymore uh what do you how do you feel about the way that the the movies uh, take the Malfoys uh I guess particularly Draco who lets Harry get by like slip right past Bellatrix Lestrange by the end of this one I, I think it's perfect. I think it's brilliant um, because it's so true. It's one of the ways that, you know, art really reflects life because people are always, you know, a lot of people, I shouldn't say a lot of people, but but hateful people are always jumping the gun to take the freedoms away from other people until they realize it's at the expense of their own freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what that is. They, you know, when it's, they think that they can take freedom away from muggles and, um, and, you know, witches and wizards of mixed heritage. Um, they think that they can take those freedoms away and still live in some kind of like free, happy society, but it never works that way, you know? Um, because if, if, if you're following a bully that's willing to bully others eventually you're going to be bullied as well. It's just what happens. Bullies bully. doesn't matter who you are. They don't really care for anyone but themselves. Um, so I think, I think that that illustrates that really perfectly. Yeah, I really, I, I love the fact that in a way, I feel like the Malfoys sort of end up being Harry's kind of ultimate allies. Like the, out of nowhere, the, the, because Kai and I have been watching a lot. We, were, we just watched Cobra Kai. So on the uh, yeah. Half-Blood Prince episode, we, were, we I kept referring to Draco Malfoy as Harry's Johnny Lawrence, basically. <laughs> now they're like, you know, the first so few funny. movies are like them on the Quidditch field, kind of competing. To, right, who's the gonna blonde get the and the brunette. And like, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and and in Half-Blood Prince reveals just how conflicted Draco is. And then here, it, they sort of are, are I, I guess... In, in the way that Snape is, they're trapped within that world. And they're also kind of get, they also kind of have Harry's back. You have Draco here who lets him pass. And then in the next one, Narcissa, who lies to uh, mm-hmm. Voldemort that Harry is dead, again, letting Harry sort of get the upper hand and, and turn things around. And I, I really, yeah, I like that in this 
in this battle against Voldemort, the Malfoys kind of become allies to Harry Potter and uh, see the error of their ways to the point where like the last time you see the Lucius is just him like turning back and booking it as fast as he can. And I, and I love that that's, uh, that's sort of where they end up that they think they're, they're the, you know, the badass like villain of the story, but they're not, they're not really, they're just as much a victim as anybody else. Like you were saying. Yes. Well, and I love too, the way it's, it really starts, you see it foreshadowed in the sixth movie and book, you know, because there's all of this description and you see it in the movie of, of Draco becoming more worn looking and um, nervous. Mm -hmm. You know, he really doesn't want the responsibility of killing somebody especially Dumbledore you you know and and he can't do it in the end he, he's not a killer he's a spineless coward and there's there's a part of him that lo- that loved Hogwarts and um and you know like so you see it start to happen so it's really great that that then you see his whole family turns that way as well you see their uncertainty and finally their their self-preservation kicks in and they're like we have to get out of here like <laughs> not worth this yeah not worth it <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm cashing out pushing all their trips to the to uh to, towards Voldemort and like we're, we're we're going home this isn't yeah right. we don't want any part of your uh your like little uh magic holocaust I guess yeah oh <laughs> I mean that's what it is that's the whole it thing is. I mean no, that's the, that's what's so great about sci-fi fantasy horror all these genres is that you can have this is a movie essentially about a, a Nazi holocaust but it's magic yeah. so take your kids. It's all good. Uh, but that's, that's essentially what the story is. It's, it's genocide basically. Yeah. And, and it's, um, I, I think that's, that's what makes this kind of storytelling so powerful is that you're able to put those, those important messages and uh, parallels under the guise of metaphor and make it more palatable to people who wouldn't go to see, you know, a movie about the actual Holocaust, but if it's wizards, then, yeah, that's okay. Don't worry about it. It's uh, right, it's a absolutely. lot safer, I guess. Yeah, it's it's um your medicine with a spoonful of sugar. Right. Exactly. <laughs> well, I, like I said before, we started the call. I just did. I just posted the Hamilton Hamilton yeah, Hamilton episode. I can't talk. Um, <laughs> and and it's hip hop history. It's like I, I learned more about American history through that than I did in the public school system here in right. Florida. So it's like I, I feel like uh, I feel like that that's that there's a lot. There's a lot to that. And I think, uh, you know, fantasy does such a great job with this. Um, I, I also wanted to point out just early on, we get a lot, the, the, I was, sorry, I was talking about sort of the stark contrast between the earlier stories. We get the Dursleys again, kind of piecing out. Um, Hermione has to turn her back on her parents and erase their memory. So like, yes. again, really starting out with like the, the stakes and the weight and the sacrifice that both sides that, that, that everyone's trying to make just to, just to survive in in this uh, sort of Voldemort's reign of terror, uh, speak to sort of to some of that because I, I you know we open with with uh, the Dursleys packing up and leaving the Granger's memory erased, and then you know we sort of even then we have a uh, an action sequence. But I think that to me the thing that really lets viewers know that this two part finale really means business is not only Hedwig. does Mad Eye die off screen, but Hedwig. Oh, it's killed. Hedwig gets me every time. Oh my gosh. I'm also, I'm a sucker if an animal dies in right. a movie. So like, and the fact that she like, that she sacrifices herself for Harry, like she's, she, 
she thinks he's in trouble and like swoops in front of him and basically like takes a bullet, you know, a wand bullet. <laughs> um, right. And, you know, and she, like to think this like small, fluffy, snowy owl, like, you know, who would have no shot against a wizard with a wand is like giving herself for this boy. I just, oh, it just crushes me. Um, yeah, it like lets you know, it's like game, it's like Game of Thrones. Um, you know, it's like letting you know, like anybody <laughs> can die um, in this. And uh, yeah, and with Hermione's parents, I was like, I hadn't really thought about it before. I was like, so Obliviate is permanent. Like, mm-hmm. I, I guess part of me always thought like, oh, I'm sure once it was all over, she like gave them their memories back. And, you know, when she's like an adult married to Ron and stuff, like they're back in her life. But watching it, I was like, no, that they obliviate never, like they can never undo obliviate. Like people are always like, just go on with their lives. It seems like, and, and yeah, the, the depth of that sacrifice. Oh man, that's crazy. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking, but it, you know, they all knew it was serious that this was an end of the world genocidal situation, Mm -hmm. you know, and desperate times, as much as it's a cliche, desperate times do call for desperate measures. I also love that once they do, uh, once they do go out into the, the muggle world, obviously they survive the, the attack, uh, in transferring Harry to the safe house, but some people don't, but the main three do, then they're, they sort of, they have a wedding with Floor and Bill Mm -hmm. And so it's the conversation of how these are dark times and they're trying to have a wedding going on and how, you know, maybe that actually is important to continue and have some kind of lightness. And, and in 2020, I, I was feeling all of that. I mean, in a much, <laughs> much lesser extent, but feeling all of that, like feeling like you're in a dark time and being like, well, let's find, you know, the silver linings. What, what is not so bad about being in a pandemic in, in this current, you know, this current administration and all of that. Um, and I feel like I, I, feel that circumstance uh, to, to some degree. Uh, but I love the fact that when they do, you know, the attack happens, the minister is killed and they just take off the, the, the main trio, not knowing what's going on, who survived, who's dead out into the muggle world for the, I feel like for the very first time we see all three of them out in the muggle world in, you know, regular clothes. And Hermione mm-hmm. of course is the most capable because yeah. she's the only one that has, has fully, in, it's fully entrenched in both the wizarding and the muggle worlds. And I, I love the fact that because of that, it kind of in a way makes her the most badass because she's so well-rounded and she can kind of handle herself equally in, in both, uh, in both worlds. Yeah. Agreed. She, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Cause I, I forget that because Harry is of both worlds, but he was so often kind of left in that house and yep. under the stairs or whatever, you know, um, where her parents obviously cared for her and took her out and about and, and she really lived in there. Yeah. I actually love that scene when they're in the muggle world and they go to that little counter shop, that little diner and Hermione orders a cappuccino and, and the other two are just like, yeah, what she said. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I was Uh, like, they don't know what that is. (laughs) And, and, and to my earlier point about how this is, sort of a, a, you know, a parable about adolescence. This is like them finding themselves in the world for the first time. It's like, or, you know, mm. uh, they're, they're out of their parents' house. They're out, you know, they're getting their first apartment. Well, what am I supposed to do now? 
what, what is it like to be an adult? It's kind of that they're kind of thrust into it out of nowhere. And then this movie really focuses on the three of them on their own, trying to figure out what to do next and, and how to go about getting the Horcruxes. We spend, I would say roughly half the movie, it feels like in the woods with our three main characters, just trying to, to figure out their next move basically. Yes. No, that's, and that's kind of what I was saying earlier is um, that's one of the things I love about this is, is how big of a presence uncertainty has, because I'm, I know I'm somebody who um, I, I can be kind of a control freak, I guess. <laughs> I try not to be, but you know, when things feel especially uncertain, I'm, I'm so much more likely to be dealing with a lot more anxiety. And, and that's one of the things that's so um, anxiety inducing about the pandemic right now is all of the uncertainty that exists, you know, like mm -hmm. when are things going to be normal again? Will there ever be a normal again? How, you know, the election, like what's going to happen? Who's going to win? Whoever does win, how is that going to play out, you know, in terms of social unrest? Like there's just so much uncertainty and, and that's almost scarier than knowing the bad thing that's going to happen. Yep. Cause, cause at least when you know what the villain is, you know, what the goal is, you, and you know, the steps to take the path to follow as scary as it might be, you at least have a plan, which makes you feel somewhat competent. But when you're just floating around completely uncertain with no instruction manual, you know, that, that's terrifying. Um, and I, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, you're so right. That is such a parallel to when you first really enter adulthood. And I mean, when I, when I graduated from college, I like immediately moved to New York to try to be an actor. And I was like, you know, sleeping on an air mattress in a tiny apartment I had found. And I had like no furniture and was like trying to find a job and like living on barely any money. And, and all of that uncertainty was terrifying. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. This is my first time living as an adult and I'm doing it completely on my own. And it's a lot, <laughs> you know, um, it ended up working out well, but, um, but you know, so that's, that's certainly the place they're in. They're just hanging out in the woods, not knowing what to do, which is one of the things that Ron keeps really struggling with. I think the most of all of them, you know, and he, he takes it out on Harry, um, because, because usually Harry and Hermione have a plan. One of them has a plan. Harry's the mm. man of action. Hermione's the, the woman of intellect, you know? So between the two of them, there's usually a lot more of a game plan going on. And this is kind of the first time where they're all kind of scrambling all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even their normal, the, like their normal tactics don't really solve the problem. I mean, in here, you know, we've kind of skipped over, there's the wedding and then there's the, uh, the ministry sort of infiltration where mm. they confront with umbrage and there's again, more polyjuice fun, more fun yeah. with polyjuice act, uh, potion, <laughs> which is like the third or fourth time. I think even in the next one, they use polyjuice again to get into Gringotts. It's like, that's their thing. They're like, oh, all right, right, there's a mystery. We have to get a thing. We just do some polyjuice and then it all works out, right? <laughs> and and even then it doesn't work and they barely escape. Um, you know, Harry gets to throw the mustn't, I mustn't tell lies thing back in Umbridge's face again, which is great. And then Ron gets injured on the way out. And I feel like it's the first time we really see blood in a Harry Potter movie. I mean, because Hermione has it on her hands. She's like tending to his wound, trying to trying to heal it with magic. And it's, it's where oh, you, you really see, get... 
Yeah, you see his like skinned muscle. It's, yes. it's pretty graphic. It's like they, yeah. I think they say he got splinched or something. Mm-hmm. They say splinched. Um, yeah, it's it's like the first time you realize, oh shit, this is not a kids movie. This is like kind of terrifying uh, that these children are, are up against uh, the, these epic forces of evil, and they might not get out of here. They killed the owl. Anything can happen. Right. Um, <laughs> right. So, I uh, and I really I really appreciate the fact that they that the movie tests those characters uh, in that way. And, you know, Dumbledore was helpful, but, you know, he just showed up and was like, here's a riddle, figure it out. And he didn't really (laughs) tell you what to do. And as this and this movie and the next one really point out, Harry didn't really know Dumbledore kind of at all. Uh, Dumbledore was obviously we, you know, we find out in the next one, his mission is keep Harry alive until hopefully we can figure out how to take care of Voldemort. But, um, but yeah, so he he doesn't he doesn't really open up to Harry in the way that I think Harry thought that he had been. Yeah, well, it's just also it's that kind of realization which you said basically earlier. You know that that your parents haven't had an identity before they were your parents, and it's yeah. like Dumbledore was a person before he was a grandfatherly old school mentor. You know, like, and and a lot of kids are shocked to find that out, you know, when they start to look at pictures of their parents when they were younger and be like, whoa, you used to have a motorcycle or, you know, whatever. I don't know. That's my first right. example. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of jolting. Or when you find out, oh, it's like when you find out when you're a kid that your teacher has a life outside of school, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. It's it's always kind of shocking. Yeah. Yeah, there was a before he was Dumbledore, he was Jude Law apparently if we're going by the new movies which while we're while I'm around the topic, have you seen either of the Fantastic Beast movies or do you care I the, because I I saw the first one and I thought it was meh, but I was yeah. willing to see the second one if I heard good things and then I heard the second one was so bad and boring yeah. that I did not bother to see it. Okay. Yeah. That's I I kind of assumed that because I feel like that's generally the reaction to to the fantastic beast movies yeah uh, in fact i kind of wonder why they even bother at this point they're just continuing because they're I think gonna make because, another uh, one yeah yeah they're oh, supposed gosh, to they, they they had planned five they said and i'm just Whoa. like please don't bother nobody cares like literally all the harry potter fans i, I mean i think they did okay the last one but nobody's interest nobody's passionate about these movies they're just kind of i mean they're just kind of there. Uh, you had now the, the kind of stink on J.K. Rowling with yeah, the, already existing, the already existing stink on Johnny Depp, who is Grindelwald. Yeah. Like, uh, everybody's going to feel icky walking into the theater. It's just, uh, I don't know. I feel like that was a bad, it's a bad call to try and drag that out so much. But it's not a terrible idea to try and make more stories in this world. I just feel like they're going about it completely the wrong way. Um but yeah, that's that's just what we've seen of Dumbledore to date. And it feels like that it's not really working out for them. Uh, what are your thoughts on all the callbacks that are that are in this movie? Because there are a lot of them. Uh, I mean, first of all, I feel like this this an alternate title could have been called uh, Harry Potter and the Magical Artifacts because he's just constantly <laughs> hunting down like... The, the sword of Godric Gryffindor, like this, right. you know, this, uh, this, this cup, and like this locket, locket. And this diadem, in the next one, and like yeah, right, just like chasing down magical stuff. 
Um, but, but in here, we get not only that, we get the snitch that's left to him by Dumbledore. Mm. Uh, Ron gets the Deluminator, which is probably my favorite callback because it's such a little detail in the very beginning of the very first movie. Uh, is there a specific callback or reappearance by a character from the previous installment that you that you really love? Honestly, I mean, not in this movie, but I do like the whole thing with the di- diadem, the, mm-hmm. the crown. Um, I I find that background that it's Ravenclaw, right? Um, yeah. The, yeah. I I thought that background was really interesting, and um, and I really liked that character, that ghost. I. Um, and oh, and I love the actress too. I can't remember her name, but it's the woman from Boardwalk Empire. And I just think she's yeah. a really wonderful actor. Kelly McDonald, um, I believe, because I looked it up okay. too. Because I was like, who is that? She looks so familiar. But yeah, yeah it's Kelly I, McDonald. It was funny because I hadn't seen the movies in a while. And then I watched Boardwalk and then I was watching the movie and I was like, oh my gosh, it's Peggy. Because um, I just I just think she's really fantastic in Boardwalk Empire. Um, so yeah, I really, I like, I like getting as much as I like the throwbacks to things we had seen in the past, like the snitch and things like that, I, I really liked getting more history um, on, on these historical figures. Cause I also think too, it's kind of sending the message about how, how much history matters. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. How, how the past is never really dead. It's because it informs the present, you know? Um, so, um, so yeah, I think it's great how all of that was tied in, but that, that would probably be my favorite. Um, I liked it. It's not in, um, the film, but in the movie, and I think it's the second half cause it's about the, the cup, the chalice. Um, mm-hmm. I like the whole part of the story where they, sh- or maybe I'm mixing up which book it might be in, but, um, where they show the whole thing about, um, how, um, how Tom Riddle gets it from this like woman from this descendant of Hufflepuff. And she's like this wealthy woman and he's kind of like, you know, schmoozing her to get it. I wish I could remember, but um, I I remembered really liking that bit of history in the book and it wasn't in the film. And I was disappointed that they had cut it because I, I really like a lot of that historical context. Yeah. These last two really feel like they're trying to, split the difference as much as possible with acknowledging all the lore and the history, as you're saying, I mean, mm-hmm. with the four houses that, you know, as I said, Godric Gryffindor comes up, Ravenclaw comes up, uh, like all the different, you, you know, Slytherin, obviously we talked about earlier in the, mm-hmm. in the series, they, they had, uh, you know, the whole, the air of Slytherin is the whole thing with the chamber of secrets. Right. Uh, so it tries to balance all of this history that the, the, the main characters and the viewers didn't know with all these callbacks uh, it, where it's basically sort of a Harry Potter greatest hits in a way. And it, and it kind of, beca- it, it feels like this is now, and I wonder now if Harry Potter was the franchise to really popularize this, but it feels like this two-part story, as well as uh, The Rise of Skywalker, as well as Avengers Endgame, all have sort of a fetch quest to use, I guess, a video, video game term. I'm not even a gamer mm. for like the longest time, but I really like that terminology uh, where they, the heroes are just chasing MacGuffins all over the place. Uh, often that tie back to either the a history that they're learning about or previous movies. And I, and I feel like Harry Potter may have been the sort of modern uh, pioneer in that regard. Because now I feel like audiences are expecting in order for something to be, to provide a satisfying conclusion to go and revisit and remind like, remember Umbridge, remember the chamber of secrets, remember the snake right. and, and kind of like 
refresh your memory and tie in all these elements. I mean, Dobby shows up in this and briefly, unfortunately, which we'll get to. Oh, um, gosh, Dobby. Dobby shows up in this for the first time since the second film. Ollivander shows up in like it's it's like deep cuts uh, that come yeah. back in in this movie and and obviously the next one. And I, I think that I feel like that is that this franchise really sort of shaped that that's now the perception as what qualifies a sort of epic franchise ender. That's a great observation. Like I've never Thanks. really thought about that. Yeah, you're totally right. No, and I, I love it when that stuff is in movies. I can't, I don't yeah. know that I can articulate why though. Um, it's that familiarity. It's why, you know, the nostalgia even if there's, familiar. Yeah, yeah. Even, even as if there's better coffee places around, a lot of times I'll just be like, well, Starbucks, I know what to expect there. That's, <laughs> that's fine. It's, 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 it's sort of, it's dependable. It's familiar. It's so, right, you know, you have right. all these warm feelings tied to it. So I feel like, uh, yeah. And this, this movie also more so than any of the other ones really assumes the, the viewer's knowledge of, of the lore and what's happening. Like there's no, there's zero hand-holding here. They just jump right in and they're like, we yeah. need to get those horcruxes. I can't imagine someone walking into this or like I mentioned, Avengers Endgame and being like, wait, what? Who are these people? What? <laughs> why, why is that raccoon carrying a gun? Like what's happening? Like right. they, there is no explanation whatsoever. And I think that just is kind of a testament to how much story they're really trying to get through. Yeah, I sh- I should tell you because you're starting to reference it a lot. I have not right. seen Endgame yet. I know, I know. I've, I, sort of, okay. I've seen your Facebook okay. post where you. Know, I'm not yeah, going to get into details. Don't spoil anything because. Well, we're... since we're on a since we're on a Marvel <laughs> tangent, I know. I think you and Mike have been slowly sort of catching up with some of the MCU. Yeah, we uh, just we just watched um, Captain America: Civil War. That's where okay. we're at. We're doing it in what? release order. Nice. Yeah, that's pretty. I mean, that's kind of the way that they. You should do yeah. it the first time, right? Mike wanted pretty to do much, it chronologically, yeah. it, and I'm like, no, that's the way you should do it once you've seen it all. Like, I want right. to see it the way other people saw it in theaters. So that's what we're right. doing. And and but then there, there's a lot of jumping around nervously where they'll mention something, and then like a next movie will have a, a story that takes place earlier that it really kind of delves more into that character, that kind of thing. So, what are your what are you thinking? What are your what are your thoughts so far on the MCU? For me, they're really um, hit or miss. Um, okay. I did not like Civil War. I thought it was very slow and and boring. <laughs> I thought there were some good action <laughs> scenes, but there was a. I was very disappointed because I heard very good things about that one. Um, but I I really liked Age of Ultron. I um I mean I think James Spader is like perfect for a villain. So yeah. um, I thought that was one of the really strong points about it. Um, I love the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Um, the Thor movies have been getting better. I love um, Tom Hiddleston. Um, he's so good. Um, I Part of it, the Captain America movies are the weakest for me. Um, oh, interesting. And I think, you and I are going to have to hash this out because she's, uh, she's all about Captain America. Well, well, part of it is I think Chris Evans is a really bad actor. Uh, okay. <laughs> and I, I, I just Shots think fired. he's very, I think he's, I think, you know what? I think he is a gorgeous man. Yeah. I think he seems like such a swell person in real he life. Does. My, that helps. I, I think I, that's, yeah, that's a big yes, part of he, it. He seems like a Captain America in life. Like I know why he got the mm-hmm. part. I feel like he walked into the room and casting was like, just chatting with him was like, this man is all American, Captain America. But then he picks up a script and becomes like as wooden as a tree. So um, <laughs> I, I I love Groot. Groot yeah. is amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I oh, freaking Groot. Oh, my heart. Um, 
so yeah, the Captain America movies just tend to go really slowly for me because, and I think it's because the lead is not captivating enough. I like the Iron mm. Man movies. I've already seen Black Panther. Love that movie. Doctor Strange is next in our order and we are going to rewatch it because it was a while ago that we saw it, but I loved that when we saw it. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see Spider-Man because I liked, uh, what's his name? Tom um, Holland. Tom Holland. Um, I like the little bit I saw of him in, um, in Civil War. Ant-Man was really bad, which was surprising to me because I love Paul Rudd so much. I actually prefer the sequel of Ant-Man. Oh, yeah? So okay, maybe you'll like that hear. a little better. Okay, I hope so. Even though I think um, Evangeline Lilly is a terrible actor. So um, mm, I'm yeah, not true. looking forward to seeing more of her. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's been very up and down um, for me. But, you know, I'm trying to look at it like it's a TV show. Mm-hmm. And and when you watch a TV show, sometimes there are filler episodes that just aren't as good. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of the perspective I'm taking. Um so yeah. And this is the perfect I, time to catch up on those too because because of the pandemic there's nothing yeah. there hasn't been anything this year so you have until whenever Black Widow comes out uh, to to catch up. Exa- yeah, exactly. No, and that'll be cool to see in the theaters if movie theaters are still a thing. Oh, yeah, I know. I can't. Oh, oh, I hate it. I don't like this. <sighs> Back to Harry Conservative. Potter. Yeah. So yes, um, but you, we sort of we mentioned. I think I feel like Lord of the Rings came up at some point. The locket felt very like that's a hundred percent the oh, One Ring. Yeah, I um, and it, it, it was sort of astonishing how much the the she, she just she who must not be named basically ripped that from Lord of the Rings. Was like I could use that in Harry Potter because it's exactly the same. It's just a it locket is. instead of a ring on a on a chain. Um, but it is I, no. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, no, I don't want to interrupt you. You go. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, but I love what it leads to for these characters and and how what it uncovers within that that main trio because uh, there's all, obviously all these simmering issues, mostly on Ron's side, that really mm-hmm. need to be brought to the surface and dealt with before they can move forward. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And um, because because it's it's great because we see so much of that in Ron coming up throughout the books. You know, he constantly mm-hmm. feels like he's in Harry's shadow, like he can never measure up, you know? And, and so of course he feels like Hermione and Harry are probably into each other. He's just, we see so many of his insecurities throughout the whole series. Um, so I think it's really important for us to see that kind of really come to a head. Um, and, uh, I think though, you know, that that's kind of where he finds some closure and, and, kind of realizes that, um, you know, he's just being his own worst enemy. Um, Mm. There was another point I was going to make and I'm blanking. So, um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, and, and I mean, I, I totally understand why Ron would feel that way. Kai and I on our, on our half foot Prince conversation, we're just like, why does she like him? Like the, the discrepancy between how awesome Hermione is how awesome Harry is. And then Ron's kind of there screaming about spiders yeah. usually. It's just <laughs> like, <laughs> what's going on? Screaming about One of these things is not like the other. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Well, I remember um, JK saying at some point that she regretted having yeah. um, Ron and Hermione end up together because their relationship is so toxic and that she would have had Hermione and Harry end up together. And I was thinking about that watching the movie. And I... 
I just feel like it would have felt a little more trite. Like, like, mm-hmm. ha- like Harry gets everything. And then what does right. Ron get? Like, exactly. you know what I mean? It just seemed like Harry shouldn't get the girl too, I guess, you know? And so I kind of understand why she did that. Um, and, you know, and maybe that whole experience, you know, sometimes like maybe they both matured and they're not toxic anymore. I don't know. I hope so. I don't, she- she she even says in this movie about I thought you know Harry says to her at one point I, I I think she says I thought you were mad at him and she's like I'm always mad at him I'm like well that doesn't sound like a good foundation right? for a relationship um, <laughs> but maybe maybe it's all just sexual tension and once they knock maybe. boots they get along really great <laughs> maybe maybe and that's why in the next one after the Chamber of Secrets has like that explosion of water when they destroy destroy the Horcrux and they kiss they're just like oh okay everything's falling into place now right we're yeah we're, we're ready we know where we'll, as soon as this is over. We're gonna get a room somewhere in Hogwarts, um, and uh, and get it over with and exactly. make it happen. Um, but yes, <laughs> it's. Uh, I mean, and, and I think part of it is too Emma Watson, who is a great actor actress uh, in this movie, and I think since then has proven that she, you know, she is one of the better of the of the the uh, young actors in this film or in this series. Uh, she just has much better chemistry with Daniel Radcliffe too. She does have better chemistry with him. I was noticing that as well. However, yeah. I I think she's the weakest actor of the three of them. Really? Personally, I Ooh, do. Interesting. I, and, I, and I think Ron, I think Rupert Grint, is that his name? I think he is the strongest, actually. Which was interesting because okay. he went through a phase where he was the weakest. But in these yeah. last two films, he's really, really good. And I've watched um, Sick Note, too. Have you watched that? I have not. It's, um, it's an, a, an English show, and he's the lead on it. It's like a dark comedy um, and he's really great on it. He's really good. And where I think she, she to me is kind of like Kristen Stewart. She always has the same like constipated look on her face. And anytime she ever has a laugh line, she f- messes it up. It's like she, it falls flat. She doesn't know how to play a, a comedy line mm-hmm. at all. Um, where I think, I think the other two are a little more versatile. And um, that's the biggest thing. It's not that she can't connect like, you know, she has some really nice vulnerable moments. She doesn't have as much um, range, I think, is what you're getting Exactly, at. Yeah. yes. She she doesn't have... She can be authentic, but it's in a much smaller space than the other mm-hmm. two, I feel. Um, but I also think art is subjective, so... Um, right, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I think it's just uh, also... I think I'm also blinded by the how, how interesting I find the fact uh, the character of Hermione. Oh, I and, love and the her And her strength uh, in this franchise and the fact that she... You know, it's not Hermione Granger and the Deathly Hallows, but it might as well be because I feel like a, a lot of times she is kind of almost almost leading the group until the end where Harry's the hero and ha- has to face Voldemort or one of his lackeys. Uh, but, you know, we get that great scene here after Ron takes off. Where it's very, this feels like the most indie of the Harry Potter films in a, in a lot of ways. Uh, there's all these landscape shots. It's clearly mm. shot outdoors, not on a green screen. Uh, and we get that that scene where the two of them are dancing, and uh, oh, I love like that scene. The light, like a kind of a light moment to keep them from both losing their minds. And I feel like a lesser film. I, I, like on one hand, I'm I, I kind of almost ship Harry and Hermione, and but I also like that 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 it's a platonic male female friendship in in one of these films. Do you? I don't know. What do you What do you make of that moment? Uh, and. <sighs> The fact that most stories probably would have had them at least kiss in that scene. 
Yeah, well, I guess, I know, I always felt like they were trying to establish them as having more of a brother and sister relationship. Mm -hmm. But there is one moment at the very beginning of that dance scene where I was like, oh, that's so weird. Where where he takes the locket off of her and Mm -hmm. he like does it in this very serious way. He doesn't say anything. He just comes like right up to her face and takes the locket off. Yeah, and to it's me, very it's intimate. very, it's, like, it's very intimate. And, gets a little and, sweaty yeah, when that scene plays. Yeah, and yeah. I'm, I'm kind of like, mm, are you guys like brother and sister? What what is happening? Right. And then they start dancing, and then it, and then to me, it feels very platonic. But there's that right. one locket moment where I'm like, ooh, what's gonna happen? <laughs> so I, you know, I don't know. It's just it's so unclear to me. Like if I were the director. I wouldn't, I would have been like, we need to retake that. This is coming across as a little too sensual and romantic. Mm -hmm. Um, I need you, I need you to take off that locket with less intensity or, um, with a try, try playing a different intention. Um, because it just, it, it, I'm not sure what they're trying to say with that moment. Um, if, if they want us to think they're going to kiss and to let mm-hmm. us know, like, if they were going to kiss, if that was what their relationship was, that's the moment where it would have happened. So is, yeah, is that their 100%. way of telling us, like, this is never going to happen because this is when it would have? Or, or was it just, I mean, I guess I have to believe that that was it because I can't I imagine that, a director making an oversight like that. Right. Yeah, I think that, I think that might be it. I think... Ron is clearly picking up on the chemistry between the two of them and isn't sure exactly what the relationship is, kind of like we aren't. Uh, mm-hmm. And then when that plays out, it's the, us, the viewer, is knowing, okay, this is not, the, you know, if they were going to hook up, this would have been their opportunity. Uh, but Ron has to sort of clear that in his head because when he destroys the locket, we get that that uh, vision of Harry and Hermione yes. nude embracing. I and, and know. It's just like, I remember <laughs> reading when that movie, when the movie came out, how you know, Daniel Radcliffe and Emma Watson were like, that was so weird because we've grown up together and now we're like in essentially a love scene in this children's movie, sort of. Um, Yeah. I was was thinking that when I rewatched it, I was like, oh, I did not remember that they were nude. This is weird. (laughs) But um, it's dark. I love it. They go there. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's, and that's Ron's worst fear is that his, yes, the, yes. the, the woman he loves and his best friend are going to betray him in that way. Uh, yeah. Even though he's not in a relationship with Hermione, really, he kind of is a little bit with Half-Blood Prince. They're sort of, uh, you know, he, he calls out for Hermione instead of Lavender Brown uh, when he's injured there. And, um, and it's sort of the reveal to Hermione that, oh, Ron does feel the same way. We just have to get to the point where we're admitting that to each other. Right. Well, and there's there's one moment in this film that um, I caught that I really like. I don't remember which scene it is, but they're sleeping and one of them is on the bed and the other is sleeping on the floor. I think Hermione's in the bed and Ron is sleeping in the floor and their arms are extended towards each other. And to me, it implied that when the lights went off, they were holding hands mm-hmm. and they fell asleep holding hands and had like let go in their sleep. Yeah. So like, obviously, you know, they were already there. I think in this film, they were seeing each other as some kind of more than platonic relationship. If they're right. holding hands in the dark, they're just trying to keep it secret. But I don't, but you know, Ron might think, is this a friends with benefits kind of thing? Or am I her boyfriend? Right. Like, what is, what is this? Is she into Harry? Like, you know, because they're both too, 
fearful to actually have a real conversation about it and like right. set up some parameters. Well, they're also on a Horcrux hunting space. Yeah, so it's it not, seems like it's so not it's, a it's like there's, yeah. It's like they're, they're both sort of unspoken. Like there's clearly something here, but they haven't sat down and had the talk and updated their right. Facebook relationship <laughs> status or whatever. Um, but yes. Uh, yeah. They're wand I, I, book. Exactly. <laughs> they, they haven't gotten to that point yet. And, uh, but I do love the way that, that, that uh, the films sort of play that out and tease it in the earlier installments that they sort of have like a crush on each other. And then it kind of blossoms uh, in these yeah. last two films. So I, I think that's sweet. I just question the long-term viability of that relationship, but you know, whatever. Um, I feel like we're getting closer to the end here, but I want to talk about the uh, the tale of three brothers and that animated sequence. Yes, which, that is again my favorite sort of like thing about this film. Actually, again, sort of like Kill Bill, which has a random animated sequence. Uh, so does Harry Potter here. So, wh- why is it your favorite thing about this film? I just well, a I love fairy tales and fables. Um, like I have. Actually, I don't have it anymore. I gave it to my younger sister because she also loves fairy tales and fables. But I used to have this complete anthology of all the original Grimm's fairy tales. And, you know, I'm sure as as you probably know, they're like super dark and, mm-hmm. and violent and creepy. And I love that. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, so I really, I, I like that there, you know, we get some insight into wizardry fairy tales. Um, and I, I just love, I love the shadow. I love the shadow animation. I just think it's, um, I just think it's really cool. And I actually, you know what it reminds me of? Um, and then it made me think of some other parallels is it reminds me of Buffy, the vampire slayer, which I'm a huge fan of, mm-hmm. um, as you know, um, cause I was like, oh yeah. And there's like a chosen one and there's a prophecy and that's similar too. But it reminds me of, um, in the last season of Buffy, you find out, you know, the origin of the slayer and they kind of find out via this little shadow lantern thing. Mm. And, and that's kind of what the animation reminded me of were, were these like, um, moving shadows, um, almost like, almost like, like, um, shadow puppets, like hands, you know? Um, I mean, not to that degree, but, um, yeah, I just, I just thought that was a really creative and, um, visually appealing way of, um, telling that story of bringing it to life. Um, cause it was, it was brought to life, but it was in shadows. So it, it wasn't fully alive. I mean, that was so much more interesting than if they had done some kind of live action flashback of people 100%. we didn't know or recognize, you know, it, it just felt so much more like, like eerie lore, like a, like a ghost yeah. story around a campfire, you know? Right. Yeah. It, it's ethereal. And the whole point is that yes. the characters are, don't, you know, they don't know that, that the Deadly Hallows actually exist. The whole point is this is a made-up story. And yeah. is this real? Do they really exist? Well, we know the Invisibility Cloak exists from the first movie. But right. uh, but the Resurrection Stone doesn't come in until way late in the second part. And right. the Elder Wand, obviously, is kind of the the cliffhanger hinges mm-hmm. on. So it it's also plays into the fact of, of the myth of the Deathly Hallows and how it's not, you know, traditionally held as fact and if we had they had showed us live action footage that would have kind of tipped that uh tipped that reveal a little sooner than True. I think is willing to to go Good for point it. yeah but yeah no I, yeah. I think that that's it's probably one of the it's definitely the, one of the standout sequences of this movie but it's also kind of with the uh the snape montage in the next one as like mm. these like perfect 
standalone pieces of filmmaking within this mm. franchise that you can just pull out and be like, look at look at this as as a piece. It sort of works almost as a short film on it on yes. its own. Yeah, uh, and I, I love that about it, and I and I love the idea of the the Deathly Hallows and the the symbol when you combine the three. And that sometimes I'm driving around and I'll see a decal on the back of somebody's car, and I'm like, hey, that's the Deathly Hallows. Like it's become well, an icon <laughs> for the franchise. That's true, but it's kind of kind of um, creepy, uh, weird because I right. um, have you watched um, this docu series that's on HBO called The Vow? I have not. It's um it's a, it's a true crime docu docu series and um have you heard of Keith Raniere or the Nexium cult? Mm-mm. Okay, no. well it's been like in the news a lot lately because they actually just sentenced Keith Raniere, who is the head of this cult. But anyway, it was a sex trafficking cult. It's super complicated. The docu series is fascinating. Um, but um, part one of the big scandals slash crimes of it was they were branding women with this symbol that it turns out was made up of the cult leader and an, another leader's initials, but yeah. they formulated it in a way to look like this weird symbol. Right. And so when I was watching this movie, I was like, Oh, the deathly Hallows symbol now looks like um, the Keith Raniere cult symbol <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> to me. They actually look That's kind creepy. of similar. Cause there's like a triangle and like, like a, a round arc. Like it's, so it kind of looks like that now. So yeah, I see now I'm like seeing, Deathly Hallows symbol in well, I guess I'm seeing the cult symbol in that. But right. It is. It's such a. It's such a pop culture reference. It's such an identifiable image now. <laughs> right. That yeah. you can and, even and see it in cult symbols. <laughs> apparently, good job, JK. <laughs> Look at all your all your inspiring people. Um, but yeah, so it's it's a really cool story and uh, worth worthy of being the the kind of uh, titular mystery of the story. Uh, I wanted Absolutely. to talk about before we before we get kind of start wrapping things up. We have to sure. talk about Dobby, who shows up, uh, who shows up sort of midway through briefly uh, with Creature, and you know, uh, kind of aids them in their mission, and then of course comes through and, and uh, as he says, he will always be there for Harry Potter. Shows up at the Malfoy Manor to help them all escape, and uh, Dobby, after completely being a boss and facing down. Bellatrix Lestrange uh, does suffer a mortal wound, and mm. do you? Do you? I'm assuming you still cry whenever you see this because it's heart wrenching. Every freaking time, every time I cry. The ultimate innocent in this franchise, too. I think that's why. Like they, it would be like. Well, I mean, going to back to the the Marvel thing, it's like when they killed Groot at the end of Guardians. Oh, the, and oh. it's just like this guy, the, the sweetest one who, right. yeah, you know, he'll kill people with his like uh, tree limbs, but it's all, it's, he's like so good natured and has this like light about him that Dobby, even in Chamber of Secrets where he's doing crazy things and kind of sabotaging Harry Potter's life, it's all in the service of protecting him. Yes. Yeah. He and has he such good intentions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's even, I mean, that's what makes his death so tragic is even like, he's even being positive in his own death. Like he's talking about how beautiful, like how beautiful everything looks Mm -hmm. and that he's so happy to be with his friends. Like, you know, it's just like, Oh, it's so heartbreaking. And yeah. And for that to happen right after he has this moment of, um, of closure and empowerment standing up against his former owners Mm -hmm. you know the people that enslaved him 
that he that he not only stands up against them, but that that by doing so he saves the life of of his friend, of the person who got him his freedom. Like, and then and then he dies right after that. It's like, oh, it's so heart wrenching. His tiny little body. Oh, and it's just so awful the way it, like his tiny little body is in Harry's lap, and he's mm-hmm. just like like in shock, like, oh my gosh, <laughs> it's so awful. Yeah, it's very upsetting. Uh, so I, I feel nearly, bad for the I feel bad for the parents that took their kids to see this one and then had to pay for all the therapy afterwards. I know. I mean, I like it's weird. And maybe it's because of my love of tragedy, but I always, I never remember that it ends with that cliffhanger Mm -hmm. um, with Voldemort and the wand. I always think it ends with Harry burying Dobby and like, and Dobby's death is the end of that movie because I guess his death like feels like such an ending to me. Um, But it makes, it makes sense that the wand, you know, I think it makes so much more sense to have it end on this cliffhanger um, to remind us of like, oh, right, this, this is the thing that we're fighting. This is the thing that we're worried about. And it's, and it's happening. Like he's playing a, a move that's going to give him a lot of power, you know? Right. Um, but, oh, but Dobby's death, it, it gets you. Oh. Yeah. That was actually going to, my, my last question was going to be about if that's the best cutoff point, Voldemort and the elder one. And I think we sort of mm-hmm. landed on why it works. You get the emotional impact with Dobby's death. And then while you're wiping your tears, you get like sort of the button at the end of the story being like, oh, and he's got the yes. old one. Get We're ready like, for oh, some damn. shit next oh, year when no. we come back with part two. <laughs> so yeah, I think I think it works. Uh, my only thing that's frustrating is that then the next one doesn't, have, like I said, the next one is just all, it's just go, go, go. Like the, you don't yeah. get a moment to breathe in the next one. Like I, I, like I said, I watched it last night and it's, I think the shortest of all of them because it's just nothing but climax. And it's, it's just, uh, yeah, yeah. It's just they they go into Gringotts and uh, and they escape from then. And then the Battle of Hogwarts starts, not even halfway through, I think. And it's just continues until until the end of the movie. And it's uh, it, it's crazy that they were able to kind of have a whole movie of just you know the Battle of Hogwarts taking up so much of the of the last film. But I think that's why it's it's so important that this movie has that character focus and those moments like Harry and Hermione dancing in, in the, in the yeah. forest and where you could be like, okay, these characters, they're experiencing this. They're doing the best they can. They're, they're, you know, facing this kind of nearly insurmount, insurmountable evil. Uh, but they're, you know, they're just people doing the best they can. And, uh, and then in the next one, it's just, they're, they're on. It's just, you know, we don't have time for that crap. So uh, is there anything about Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows part one that we didn't talk about that you wanted to make sure we mentioned? This is really small, but um, I, one thing that bugged me rewatching it is when they, when Hermione um, hits Harry with that spell to make his face swell up as a disguise mm-hmm. when they're kidnapped um, at the end or towards the end. Um, I'm like, why did nobody look at his forehead to see if he had a scar? <laughs> Like, even when they're asking, like, Draco if he knows who he is, and he's like, uh, I don't know. Like, I was thinking, like, uh, he's got a super identifiable scar on his <laughs> forehead. Like, why would that not be the first thing they would look for? So that is kind it, of, I was like... Is it as visible, though? I feel like when his skin kind of, his head kind of swells up, 
that it's I don't know, harder to discern that maybe. We need to see them then pick up his <laughs> hair and look and be like, oh, I can't tell his forehead's all swollen. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> like I, I need that detail. Like I... <laughs> I mean, it's that, also kind, kind of, things bug me. <laughs> it's also kind of dumb that you pick up a kid who looks like, you know, similar body glasses. size of Harry, glasses, dark right. hair, hanging out with Ron Weasley and Hermione right. Granger. I mean, <laughs> right. History, like, it's a pretty good odds. Him. Just saying. Right. Um, so that, that like, kind you know, I just, it especially bothers me that stuff almost doesn't bother me as much in material that's not as well written. But because right. there's so many well thought out details in this franchise, when then something is like that, I'm like, what the hell? Come on. Like, you're supposed to do better. Right. So, exactly. So that's like, that's the only thing. Yeah. It's like, come on, JK Rowling. We used to expect better of you. Yeah. Uh, right. Take, take, maybe you're focusing too much of your energy on, you know, hating people and you need to instead be better at writing your books. Yeah, go know. back and read your own <laughs> books and uh, the, the the magical protection that uh, a love of a, the love of a mother for her son. And that, that's the basis for the entire thing. Um, I know. It's like, yeah, get back to, take yourself back to, to school, I guess. But uh, so if there's nothing else, Lindsay Cole, can you tell people where they can find you on social media again? Yeah, um, my Insta handle is um, Lindsay with a Y not. Um, I love the love that username, by the way. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> um, it's L Y N D S E Y with a Y, and I think it's underscore not. Um, but uh, my name is uh, Lindsay Cole, L Y N D S E Y C O L E. And um, like I said, you can check out my acting website too. Um, you can look me up on YouTube. If you want to see any of my stuff, be friends with me on Instagram. I'd love to meet you. Um, yeah, I guess that's it. Thank you for having me on, Rob. This was super fun. I love Yeah, um, thanks for coming on. You're, you're welcome anytime. This. And Thank you. And, <laughs> and uh, definitely keep me posted on uh, your, your MCU experience because I'm, I'm really curious. Now, you're, now Civil War is the beginning of phase three, which is the one that just ended with Far From Home, Spider-Man Far From Home. So I'm curious okay. to see where the rest of it, uh, how the rest of it plays out for you. Okay. Well, as, as you've noticed, I'm very opinionated. So I will, <laughs> I will let you know what I think. Awesome. Thanks, cool. Lindsay. Thank you. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash table. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of crookedtable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the